Will you stand with me for the reading of our gospel? The gospel according to St. John, chapter 6, starting with verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you all this morning. Hope you're doing well. Uh, I've been asked a few times. There are no sermon illustrations today about the uh, beard being shaved off. Thanks, Hannah, for laughing at that. I appreciate it. Um, no, I'm really glad to be with you all today. We are uh, continuing our series on being a resurrection people and what does it mean to be a people formed and shaped by the resurrection. And we're reading specifically from the Ephesians texts that we've been going through the past few weeks. So those of you that are um, new around these parts, we read these three scripture texts every week. Usually it's one from the Old Testament, one from the epistles of Paul, and then one that's the gospel reading. And then usually our sermon, sometimes we tie all three together and sometimes we'll take one particularly. And we've been in these readings, we've been in the book of Ephesians um, the past several weeks, and we've been forming this around a series that we're calling Resurrection People. Paul is talking to this church in Ephesus about what it means to be a people in light of the resurrection of Jesus. What does it mean to be the church, to be a people who have been formed by this event? And so much of what we've walked through so far has been about these big concepts, these concepts of identity, of who we are, about our rootedness in God and these big, bold, broad stroke proclamations about who God is and who we are in him. And in this passage, there's a shift. Paul begins to unpack what is this life in the spirit, this life as resurrection people or in resurrection country look like? Uh, I wanna invite you to go ahead and turn if, uh, if you want to in an actual physical Bible this morning. Um, we have not done this before, but today I really wanted you to look at this passage and also coincided with we had this beautiful gift given to us this week by the people of Rhythm City Church. I'll talk a little bit more about this in a little bit, but uh, they've given us a bunch of things and one of them is physical Bibles. And I looked at them and was blessed by them and realized, wow, imagine that, having physical Bibles in the church that you could turn to if you want to. So you still can turn to your phone if you want to. You can look on the screen if you want to. All that's fine. But we're in Ephesians chapter four, starting with verse 25. And it might help you to see this verse by verse as we walk through this. We have to be careful when we read this passage because 
it can look like a bunch of stuff that we've just heard before our whole lives. It's one of those passages that might feel like it's easy to skip over. Yeah, I know all of that stuff. Like, don't lie, it says. Okay, yes, right? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. That, that microphone is <laughs> responding to what I'm saying this morning. Um, don't steal. <laughs> Should have been the, the thing with that. Don't steal. Don't build, like, don't, like, build up people with your words. Get rid of bitterness, rage, and anger. Be compassionate, forgive, all these kind of things that we go, yeah, we've heard that before, right? That's part of, like, what we've been told our whole lives. So many of us read this and we go, oh, nice. Paul is giving some nice ethical guidelines to us today. Good, wonderful. I can skip all that because I've heard it before. Do this stuff because it's good. It's good for people. It's good for the world. It's good for yourself, all those kind of things. But I want to suggest today that how resurrection people live has implications, not just for us, not just for our families, but also for our neighbors. Christian virtue, holiness, has an impact not just on you and your family, but on the systems of our world, okay? The broken systems of our world, systems of injustice and oppression. I want to suggest that in some way it has cosmic implications, how we live for the whole world. And there's an important anchor here that we must not forget. The Holy Spirit is our guide. So if we think of these things and we look at them just as moral guidelines, and we go, this is up to us to live the way that we're supposed to live, and, and it's on us, and we better do these things, and we do it right, we fall back on our own ability to achieve these guidelines, and ultimately we fail. We miss the mark on those things. Moral acts give form to the resurrection life. We aren't earning anything by living morally, okay? So like if you live a certain thing, it, it's not that you get like in kindergarten when we used to get those stickers, you know, that would like be our achievement points or whatever. That's not what we're talking about here. We don't get that with God for doing moral acts. He loves us more than we could ever uh, be loved. We don't achieve or earn our salvation in him. Um, we aren't earning anything. They are, the moral acts are the forms. They give what form and shape to what God is doing in us and through us. So Eugene Peterson, this author, says, moral acts are the art forms for arranging and giving expression to resurrection. They're the art form. Our moral acts, have you ever thought of your morality as an art form before? <laughs> not just a, legal, not a legalistic thing, not a way of earning, not a test that you have to pass like in school, but an art form. What if we thought about moral and ethical living less as a test to be passed and more of art to be brought forth? I want to look at these ethical things today, these, these elements of resurrection life, and I want to look at these implications that they might have for us. So first of all, he says, put away falsehood, put off falsehood, and speak truthfully to your neighbor, okay? Put away falsehood, speak truthfully. That sounds obvious, but... Um, we live in a world right now where truth is often very much obscured. I don't know if you've noticed that. Quickly twisted. Um, what, might, what might it look like if the body of Christ was willing to be the people who are the most open and honest? Who are open and honest and, and point to truth in a real way, not in a way that's self-serving, but in a way that provides transparency and a path toward healing. Unfortunately, 
I don't know if you guys, and I don't want to get down this road, but I don't know if you guys have followed um, lately uh, some of the scandals that have come out even in the church on a large scale, even in the past few weeks. And it's just so sad that the lack of transparency and honesty within the church, how quick we are to hide that the church is not currently known as the people of honesty and transparency. And that's hard. That's grieving. But I think this also happens in the little things. Often, I think our first instinct, when we do something wrong, maybe something small, we're late for an appointment, we miss a deadline, I think our first instinct is to color ourselves in the most positive light, right? That's my first instinct, at least, right? It may not be a lie, but it's, what way can I talk about this that makes me look the least culpable for what I just did, <laughs> right? What, what is the best way that I can make myself look but what if instead we were just honest about our mistake? Gosh, I missed it there. And I'm sorry. Um, I'm going to work at this. And if appropriate, I'm going to make a plan, an intentional plan to get this right the next time. Now, this doesn't mean we have to be brutal, okay? So we don't have to say, well, honestly, I was late to that meeting because I don't really care about that meeting very much. Like, no, don't, don't do that because that doesn't move us towards healing. That doesn't open the door towards healing. That actually causes more discord. So when we're talking about honesty. We're not talking about some brutal honesty. We're talking about honesty that leads us towards healing and restoration. We speak the truth in love, which means that we admit fault and we seek healing. That's, gosh, I've got so many rabbit trails I wanna go down right now, but that's one of the reasons why I think it's so important when we say the confession every Sunday because it gets us in this rhythm of recognizing there are things I have missed and I need to admit those things. But notice, we'll never say the confession without the proclamation of forgiveness. We never just confess our sins and feel bad about that. We confess our sins and then we go, we are forgiven people. Okay, so speak, speak the truth in love. Be truthful, put away falsehood, speak truth. Secondly, it says, put away sin in your anger. So in your anger, do not sin. Now, I think this, this passage is so interesting because it assumes that we will get angry. Resurrection people are not people who just go around and just are fine with everything and never get angry. They're not people who don't care about injustices in the world. Quite the opposite of that. In fact, if we deny our anger when we experience anger, we're actually in violation of the first thing, speaking truth, okay? Because anger is truthful. It's a real, true emotion. Um, to deny it is a lie. It's not that we don't... The reality is the other side is it's we don't allow our anger to lead us to a place where we sin. So we don't allow our anger to get, get us to a point where we lash out, where we separate, where we condemn a person for their fault, right? Now, often it happens more subtly than that. Some of us think about, well, yeah, I don't haul off and hit people all the time when I get angry or whatever, but it's often way, way, way more subtle than that, especially with your spouse, those of you who are married okay, or your roommate, okay, or your friend. It's so easy to let anger turn into sin. So it's that way of tilting our voice in that judgy way that doesn't feel like it's much, but it just might get them, right? <laughs> just enough. You get mad about the fact that food has been left on the counter before bedtime and you don't shout. You just kind of say under your breath, well, it's my philosophy that we keep things clean around here, right? <laughs> That's not bad, right? Well, maybe. You have just let your anger cause you to tumble, right? So, okay, so there's that. There's truthful speaking. 
There is putting away your sin in anger, even when you get anger, get angry. And then it also says, put away stealing, pick up beneficial work. Okay, so don't steal from each other. Work instead. That's one of those things that we go, great, got that one. <laughs> like, maybe not, but, but sometimes we do. This seems like an obvious throwaway verse sometimes. But Paul's not just telling people that stealing is wrong. That's not just what's happening here. He's saying that these petty thieves actually have something to offer the community to the world that they're not taking hold of. Think about this. Notice the purpose of work for Paul. Work is doing something useful with your own hands that we may have something to share with those in need, okay? The purpose of work is to share with those in need. In our often hyper-capitalist society, that's interesting, isn't it, right? The purpose of work is to share with those in need. Can you believe that? That's for Paul is what is going on here. Paul is telling the petty thieves they shouldn't steal, not just for the reason we would say it, because it takes away something that rightly belongs to somebody else, even though that's true as well, okay? That's important as well. But the reason not to steal for Paul is because you as a thief, you actually have a gift to offer the world, Paul says. You have something to bless the world with and to give to the world. A couple of Christmases ago, we were on a trip to Tulsa, which is where we're from, and we were on our way back, and we stopped for 30 minutes in Memphis at a hipster coffee shop. We do that a lot, right? So we stopped in Memphis. We're going to stop there. It's like 10 o'clock in the morning. We're going to run in and get coffee, and there's a little, little store in there. So we look around for a little bit. We've got Lucy with us. And we were in this at the time. We had two really small cars, and we were in the biggest of our tiny little cars and had crammed all of our luggage in there because we were there for a period of time, including my computer bag, which happened to be in the back window, which I know, big rookie mistake, all right? It's just, you guys know me by now. You know, I do this kind of stuff. But, uh, but it was in the back window, and it's 10 a.m., and we go inside, and while we're in there, we come back out, and we look, and I'm like, how did Lucy's window get rolled down? Because I'm seeing it from a distance. And then I'm like, oh, man, there's glass all over the ground. What is going on? It took me a few minutes, because I opened the door, and there's glass in Lucy's car seat. They have broken into the car, and they've stolen not just my computer bag, but all of our stuff, right? And they've taken it. And in that moment, I felt not only angry, but violated, right? If you've ever had anything stolen from you, that frustration, my, the visual image of my daughter's car seat with glass all in it, and just how frustrating and how difficult it was. And as I was preparing this sermon, I was remembering how violated I felt, how frustrated, how empty, and all of those feelings are legitimate. Anger in that moment is legitimate. Those feelings are legitimate. But this week I was thinking, what if instead of thinking how all this hurt me, what if as somebody formed by the Holy Spirit, somebody who is in the practice of resurrection and what it means to be a resurrection people, what if I was able to think about the loss that the world was experiencing because this person turned to thievery instead of giving their gifts to the world? What if I was ever someday able to get there, <laughs> right? How powerful would that be? The world is missing out on something that this person has, this gift that this person has. And, and you can see how that's a, such a significant shift. This person is no longer in my mind a scummy lowlife, but someone who is loved by God, who is made in the image of God and has distorted his or her God-given vocation, right? So that's the stealing part of this, right? 
Then it says, put away unwholesome talk, take on meaningful talk, okay? So don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Now, we might think of this as cussing or dirty jokes. It might include that. But look at the rest of it. The goal here is that our words would have benefit and meaning. That everything that we speak, or the goal is that everything that we speak, would have benefit and meaning to the world. My friend, Dr. Chris Green, is a theologian and a professor, and he spoke here um, a few months ago. And he postulates that the human calling, what human beings are called to do, is really to make meaning in the world. And one of the ways that we do this is with our words and what we speak. So human beings are speaking people. That's, well, speaking things, that, that this is what we do. And we're the only ones who communicate in such a way. Like human beings are unique because of the speech that we give. And then we give meaning to things through the speech that we have, this tradition of speech. In fact, even when we don't speak, so people who don't have the ability to speak, we still communicate. We have sign language. We have behaviors that communicate certain things. Human beings are cre uh, communicative people, communicative things, and we give meaning to things through our words and through our behaviors. Words matter. They're not just words. Words are part of the process of meaning making. Now, we're humbled by the fact that our words are always conditioned. So like, we can't ever speak the perfect word. We're always conditioned in some way, but words still matter. And the Christian calling is to fulfill that human calling of making meaning, that our words are meaningful and beneficial. Our words are part of new creation in some way. My friend, Father Thomas McKenzie here in Nashville, he posted a Facebook post that really inspired me this week. And he talked about how we're often taught this, like, and when we think about words, the traditional mindset about words is that a word is a thing. It's the same thing as a thing. So if I have this chair here and I say the word chair, that's just what I mean is that, right? It's the same thing. So traditionally throughout history, most people kind of thought of words that way. A word and a thing are equal. They're the same thing. Well, then the modern world that kind of shifted um, with the influence of Plato, the Greek philosopher, and kind of going down the line, um, there was a belief that words are not things, words are like ideas. So Plato believed that behind every chair, there was a form behind a chair, okay? So like, we, that's not the actual chair, but there's something behind that chair that we're trying to get to that's universal. So when I say chair, we all kind of have a universal meaning. That's the modern world. Well, then in the postmodern world, that all kind of shifted because it, it wasn't anymore about words are things and it wasn't anymore about words or ideas, but it was words are just words, <laughs> okay? Like they don't really mean anything except for to the tribes that have that kind of word in common, okay? So why am I talking about all of this? Well, I think we live in a world now where we're seeing words <laughs> have really lost so much meaning, okay? That I can say a word and you can say a word and they mean totally, completely different things. And we're kind of wrestling with that. We're trying to figure out, okay, what does that mean? Because we live firmly in the postmodern milieu right now. Words have lost meaning. We throw them around. And what's weird about this is what I'm not saying is that we got to go back to the traditional or we got to go back to the modern because those were flawed too, right? Like, I'm not saying that, that that's where we need to go, but what I do wanna say is, I think our world has become so frustrated by the fact that words are so incomplete, that we don't know how to fully make meaning with words, and that's so frustrating. I say something that seems really clear to me, and it doesn't seem clear to you. It seems like I'm saying the opposite thing. 
In fact, some Christian scholars over the centuries have gotten frustrated with words and they've kind of said that really this inability to communicate what I want to communicate is the result of the fall. That because of sin, because of my own brokenness, I can't communicate what I want to communicate. We just can't figure it out. But the thing I want us to remember is language, the ability to communicate, the ability to make meaning out of words is God's gift to us. That's God's calling for us. We shouldn't stop with the meaning making. We need that. Words matter. They're important. We're made to interpret, to make language, to assign meaning. And yes, because of our broken state, language doesn't quite work for us. We can never fully say what we mean or what we mean by what we say. We're unable to be faithful with our language fully. So we speak in distorted ways about God and it distorts who we are and our vocation and who human beings are made to be in the world. And yet, here's the and yet, in the Christian story, God doesn't ever give up on his people in their broken state, in our distorted state. He saves us completely, and that includes saving our language, those places where we miss the mark. In fact, John, in John's gospel, he says that the word, God, Jesus, was made flesh. He uses that term word that word, that language has been in flesh, that Jesus is the word. And in the Christian story, words matter. Words are enfleshed in the person of Jesus Christ. God speaks and in Christ, God makes meaning. God creates a new world. Jesus is the only one whose words are not mixed, are not, communication is not broken or distorted. He speaks the true word. He's not dominating, selfish, exclusive, or any of the things that distort our right speaking. And thereby, Jesus brings a new kind of language, the language of God's new world. And we, the church, are the people of that new language. So you can see that words don't just matter because we wanna be nice, okay? That's not, it's not just an ethical command because, oh, Paul knew that it's nice to say nice words, and so that's what we needed to do. Words matter because we are a people of this new creation, a resurrection people, a signpost of God's new world. And we are striving to hear and to speak the language of the Spirit, the language of new creation, to embody God's word. So Paul would say, how this works out practically, we need to be intentional about the language that we use. Does it build up? Does it provide meaning? All of this is part of listening to the Holy Spirit and learning this new language. And we're striving to do this. We can celebrate the fact that it's incomplete still, that we still miss the mark. We seek to be a people who listen and who speak to God's word. In closing of this section, Dr. Green said, I think that God uses our agonizing and our never quite successful efforts to speak faithfully to God and for God as a means of grace for us. Our effort to bring God's word faithfully to bear in our own words actually somehow makes room for the transfiguring nearness of the spirit in our neighbor's lives as well as our own. So, all right, so he talks about this, um, this idea of uh, speech and of words. And then randomly, there's something thrown in there. It seems random to me. I mean, it was not random to Paul, but, but he says here, um, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Another place where we think 
Paul is just giving nice practical advice. It totally breaks down here. So he's talking about don't steal, speak wholesome words, and then don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Whoa, Paul, that's heavy. You're giving us some nice guidelines. What are you talking about? Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Throughout this section, also, Paul's been doing this. He's been saying, put away this and take on this. And there's these even lines here. And then randomly, with no correlation, there's don't grieve the Holy Spirit. What are you talking about here? This sentence stands out. It just says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And not only is it not complemented by a positive, but the rest of the statements have been about our posture toward one another. So it's been, don't talk this way. Don't steal from one another. Don't do this. And this one doesn't seem to be about that. It seems to just be about our posture towards God. If you think about it for a minute, grieve is a relational term. We have to always remember that these things that Paul is calling us to do, these forms, these patterns of behavior are not impersonal rules. It's not that Paul gives us a list of rules, of rules that we have to follow. Some have tried to extract these rules from relationship with God and then try to obey them fairly well, okay? Talk nicely, care for others, be compassionate, forgive. And then we use them as a script motivated by personal performance, maybe by legalism, maybe by people-pleasing. But that is to take away this deeply personal reality, this thing that is relational, and to use it for our own gain. And Paul would say, that's grieving to God. That's grievous to God. Don't take this out of the context of relationship. Don't make this just a list of rules. This is something I'm calling to, to you because I love you, because I'm in relationship with you. And notice how familial that word is. It doesn't say this. It doesn't say, don't make the Holy Spirit mad. It doesn't say, don't tick off God. It's not saying those things. It says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit because the whole thing is about him and who he's calling us to be the best way that we could possibly live. And when we go outside of that, that hurts. It's grieving to him because he loves us so much. Then the next section, it's basically get rid of the stuff that tears apart, take on forgiveness. So Paul says, finally, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Why does he say these things? Because these are the kinds of things that tear communities apart. Think about uh, bitterness for a second. In most of our churches, we don't really see rage and brawling that often, okay? It's not that I'm gonna say something and somebody who's gonna stand up and just, no, and start you know, going after each other and split and all that kind of stuff. Like, now, I do have some stories about these things, okay, that I could tell you. But for the most part, we don't see a lot of rage and brawling. What we do see a lot in churches, I think, is bitterness. Bitterness is something that takes a hold of stuff. We hold on to stuff and we don't address it. We make assumptions about what people think about us and we just let it fester until either we break off those relationships or it blows up in a dramatic way. This is why I wanna suggest, this is why this word judgment is so important and is something that the church can't run away from. We don't like the word judgment. We get uncomfortable. We just kind of twist in our seat a little bit when we hear the word judgment. But judgment matters. Judgment simply means shedding light on something. That's all judgment means, okay? It doesn't mean condemnation. It doesn't mean telling people that they're bad or wrong. Judgment simply means shining a light, revealing what's there. 
If we don't reveal what's in our heart, if we leave something locked away and just hope that that other person will change or that we can change them through our passive aggressiveness, it won't work. Bitterness dwells in our heart. It grows, it festers. So we gotta bring that stuff into the light. When we confess our sins every week, historically, that's not just like an individual cleansing moment. It's not just where we have, okay, I bring this to light and then just cleanse it. I mean, that's part of the whole thing. But the reason why, you know, when we, we're gonna exchange grace and peace in a few minutes, the reason why the peace of God was exchanged right before communion in the church historically, the reason why they turned to one another, it wasn't a greet your neighbor, Southern hospitality, how y'all doing today, right? The reason why peace was exchanged is it was, okay, we've confessed our sin. Now, are we cool? Are, are we okay with each other? Like, do we have peace with one another? Like, this isn't just a vertical thing. This is a horizontal thing that God is bringing us together. Is everything right with my brother or sister when I come to the table of the Lord? Kindness and compassion, Paul says, are part of this life. I don't know about you, but when I hear kindness, I think of a kind of a wimpy word, to be honest with you. Um, I shouldn't think of it that way, but we think of kindness as kind of a word that doesn't have a lot of bite to it. We equate it with just niceness. But for Paul, kindness is one of the purest expressions of imitation of God. When we are kind to one another, that is one of the best expressions of who God is and how he loves us. Our God is the one who is kind we don't ever have to worry like the, the pagans of the ancient world when they would offer sacrifices to their gods. We don't ever have to worry about God liking us one day because of something we did and not liking us the next day and smiting us because of some whim that he had, right? God always looks upon his children with kindness and compassion, always, always. Our prayers are received with kindness, always. Our hurts and even our brokenness is looked upon by God with compassion. If you think for a minute about, I talked about the, the ancient world and the pagan gods and how flighty they were. Think for a minute about the gods that we chase, the other things, the counterfeits that we chase. They can't promise the same thing. God will always look at us with kindness and compassion. The other things that we chase don't always look at us with kindness and compassion. If you chase vanity and good looks, that's gonna fade eventually. It's fleeting. If you chase money, money one day can be really easy to come by and the next day everything's closed off, right? It's fleeting. People are fickle. So if you put your hope in other people's opinions and what they think of you, that will always change. One minute your boss thinks you're killing it at work, and the next minute, you can't figure out why you were passed up for that promotion. That's always fleeting. And yet our God's posture towards you is always kindness and always compassion. That's his heart and that's who he calls us to be. And of course, with kindness and compassion always comes forgiveness. So when we brought things into the light, we choose then out of forgiveness to release the offense. With some things, interpersonal squabbles, misunderstandings, that means we can just completely let that go. Okay, so if you have an issue with somebody, that's brought into the light, it's dealt with, there's a plan. Often we can just let that go. And we say it's forgiven and that's done, okay? Sometimes with bigger things, we choose to let go of the offense. We forgive completely. And also, sometimes there's also been a significant trust that's been broken. 
Notice I say also, there's not a but there. We can completely forgive somebody, can let go of the offense, and also go, there's been a pattern of behavior in some of my relationships where I've got to set some boundaries in that relationship, where I have to change the way that this relationship functions. That does not mean that you're not forgiving them. Okay, we can let go of that. We can have peace in our hearts from that. We can release that offense. That's good for us. That's good for them. And then also go, I have to, moving forward, I have to make a plan where certain boundaries are put in place. Sometimes we release the offense and we also, out of love for ourselves and the other person, have to change the parameters of that relationship. But why forgive? Is it just because it's a good idea? Is it because Christians are nice citizens? Maybe. Maybe, but mostly this is because of who God is. Forgiveness is at the core of who God is. He is the forgiving God and he forgave us. We are resurrection people, which always means we are forgiveness people. As we close here, um, this last little verse says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There's a lot in this little verse that we could unpack today, but what I'm hoping today is that this verse serves as an umbrella for us of all that we talked about. Resurrection people led by the Spirit are people who seek to follow God's example, but we follow God's example, not simply like a pattern for making a dress. Now, I don't know anything about that, <laughs> but, but I, you know, there's those patterns that you buy. Like if you're gonna like make a dress yourself, I think that you follow, right? I won't get too far down that because I'm gonna, I don't know that. But, or like um, if you think about a picture to be traced, sometimes we think of God as an example that way, that we have a picture and then we put a piece of paper on top and then we trace it. But that's not really what we're talking about here. We follow his example as dearly loved children. It's not just a pattern of behavior that we follow. It's relational. If you, I've noticed that Lucy um, is well now at an age where she follows our patterns of behavior, okay? So like when we do something, we really have to watch ourselves. <laughs> um, we've had to be very careful about the TV that we watch when she's in the house. We have to be very careful about what we say and what we do around other people, things that we should be doing anyway, <laughs> but, uh, but that's happened. So when she was like two and a half, she was in the other room in the kitchen. We were in the bedroom. All of a sudden we hear a crash that something's dropped, not a serious crash, but a little crash. <laughs> and then we hear Lucy and she goes, oh crap. <laughs> we're like, oh, <laughs> Where did she hear that from? Ding, 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 right? I have to be so aware, but she's following our pattern of behavior. But as she follows our behavior, our hope is not that she just follows it, oh, like, that's what mom and dad do, so I have to do that too. It is because she is a dearly loved child, that she follows our example because she is dearly loved by us. You are not invited to follow Jesus just because it's the best way to live. You are not called to follow Jesus because it will straighten your life out. You are called to follow Jesus as a dearly loved child of God. And therefore, you will see organically that if you understand that you're dearly loved, you can then walk in the way of love. This isn't just a generalized love. Um, I don't know that we all really know what love really is a lot of times. We say we love a bunch of different things. We throw that word around. You ask 50 people what love means and you get 50 different answers. But Paul gives us here and elsewhere the definition of love. And he says this, 
just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. That's the definition of love for Paul. That's the kind of love. Anytime we wanna know what love is, we look at Jesus. That's what he did. That's who he is. A love that is self-giving, a love that is oriented in worship to God. That's what love is. And Paul's very concerned with identity before behavior. This is not just a letter about behaving right. This is a letter about who you are as a dearly loved child of God. Now, don't misunderstand. He is concerned about behavior. That's what we're talking about today. But that behavior is just the form. It's like the vase that holds the bouquet of flowers. The spirit provides the flowers, the fruit, the blossoming. Our patterns of living are the form which holds the flowers. It's possible to have a vase on your table with no flowers in it, but that's something else entirely, right? That's not a flower holding thing. That's something else you've created, right? But when the the Holy Spirit provides the flowers and we see that bouquet and our, our behavior is the form of that, there's beauty to that. The God who has adopted us, who set us free, who sealed us by the Holy Spirit has called us to live as signposts of his new creation in the world in which we now live, in our speech, in our kindness towards others, in our forgiveness. And we do this not just in following an example rotely, but because we are called as dearly loved children of God. Let's pray. Gracious Father God, we thank you for your love for us. Lord, we thank you for um, giving us a whole new definition for love and what love means through the action of Jesus on the cross, giving himself for us fully and completely. Lord, our hope is you, as we recognize we have a human calling to make meaning, to be beneficial to the world, to be a blessing to the world, and that we always have gone astray over and over again. It's led to our brokenness. It's led to our distorted nature. And yet, Lord, thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for rescuing us, for adopting us, for setting us free. Lord, our hope today and every day is that we would be formed into that pattern of freedom, of adoption, that we are would recognize that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, that we would listen for your voice. So today I pray that you'd continue that formation in our hearts. As we come to the table, we come and we meet with you, the God who has come close to us. Thank you for inviting us with all of our weaknesses, not on our own, but you've invited us. And thank you today, even as we leave this place, that you send us. We trust in you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.